Oh, that says pocket. It should be bonnet. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 240 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I keep trying to eat less crisps, but failing. Why try? Yeah. They're not great for you. <laughs> They're not great for yeah, you. And but you're quite healthy. You don't smoke. If the caveat is I don't smoke, if that's the only thing. You don't smoke, you exercise. Mm, I eat shit, you know. You don't drink loads. Eat the crisps, I say. Well, I am doing, Jen, and I think it's mainly because the price of failure is crisps. <laughs> I'm like, oh, only yeah. the price of failure wasn't delicious crisps. Maybe I'd stand a chance. Well, can I say I don't strictly agree with what Jen said. Jen said eat shit crisps. If you're going to eat crisps, eat nice crisps. No, I didn't say eat shit crisps. I just said eat the crisps. Oh, okay. Good. Eat nice crisps. Oh, I do. I do, Hannah. I'm doing you both proud. Thank you. Thank you for <laughs> for just backing me up on my crisp. <laughs> I am like 85% crisp at any given moment. Because of my internet stress, I came back and I stress out like half a packet of a family packet of crisps. So yeah, the attempts aren't, aren't doing very well. How do you feel about a truffle and rosemary crisp, Meg? Some of the crisps I ate were truffle flavoured, Jen, but they they were Italian black truffle. It was a Sainsbury's Christmas special and we've got a bag left because mm. they are delicious. But rosemary, mm. I find herby flavours can taste a bit fake. Give me a salt and vinegar any day. Give me a crisp that makes me do this. <laughs> i'm hannah dunleavy and i've a bigger than normal size b in my bonnet about the length of short leg trousers now then i saw you take to twitter with this but for the mm. listeners do you want to explain why you quite rightly have like well i reckon like eight b's in that bonnet yeah well, interestingly, it got such a huge response that, uh, including a couple of excellent women that we know saying, I'd like to come and talk to you about how fed up I am with short leg trousers, that there may be more to come. I might find out exactly who sells them and what the exact length of them. But I needed to buy a pair of black trousers. That's a pretty simple thing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to have pockets and to not drag along the ground. They were the two requirements. The rest of it didn't give a fuck. And I was in Milton Kings, which does some late night shopping, unlike Cambridge. So I went for a bit of late night shopping. Did you put roller skates on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go around the shopping centre. Yeah. Yeah. I flew by. <laughs> Only took five minutes. Um, I went to Next, who had no short leg trousers at all. I went to Marks and Spencer's, which had short leg trousers that still drags along the floor on me. I've had nothing in Primark even though I would never go in Primark but then I had a bee in my bonnet and I wanted to find out who sold short leg trousers and I went somewhere else and I can't even remember where it was now four women's high street shops nothing nothing I saw on the replies to your tweet that Marks and Spencers have changed the lengths of their trousers which I can verify because I would have usually been a long and now their longs are too long for me I'm not showing off Hannah sorry and now their longs are too long for me and the regular fit which I assume means they're shorter longer than they used to be as well yeah yeah we also found a pair that were short leg in Marks and Spencers and held them up against the pair that said regular size in Marks and Spencer and they were the same length okay Okay, that's useful, Marks and Spencers. Well done. Now, Hannah, I'm not going to be able to help you out in time for when you require these trousers, but I'm going to tell you about something that I will be purchasing for my own sewing means, probably tomorrow when the shop opens. Wonder tape. For hemming. Wonder web. Yeah. Stick it in the hem. Trouble with that, Jen, is when you are really short, you know, it's not about folding Mm. like that 
over and webbing, like, and that's it, and you've taken an inch off, you've got to get rid of, like, three or four inches. So you've either got to fold it over a lot, and then the hem becomes really heavy, or you then have to cut it. Because otherwise, the hem, which you've ironed, is visible, like, halfway up your calf, <laughs> because you've had to fold so much off the bottom of it, or eventually it frays to fuck, because you've had to cut the fabric. So, yeah, it's super annoying. I don't think you should have to own an overlocker just for uh, the purposes no, of, of making and, and the trousers fit. No, people will suggest, you. you know, maybe you could take, you can go and get them taken up for like a fiver. You know, like, but why should I have to pay five pounds more than everybody else for a pair of trousers? No, I'm with you. I don't. I don't think you should have to pay more for a pair of trousers. Also, I think it would cost you more than a fiver to get someone to do that. For that you, shows it? how much I know. That's what I give me, mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, well this changes everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Hannah, I don't want to show off, but um, I'm Jen Offord and I've made a pair yeah. of trousers, guys. Tell Stop me you've it. made them too long for yourself, Jen. <laughs> they are actually preposterously long and they are going to require quite a massive hem, which is why I was nodding along as Hannah spoke. I'm going to go and get myself some wonder tape tomorrow to help me uh, achieve the hemming of said trousers. Otherwise, they're completely finished. Yay, they look amazing. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. The The waistband is... Not as neat as it could have been, but... Um... But since it's up by your tits, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I'm talking to the mighty Val McDermott about queer love poetry, because why the hell not? We should have her on every week. Absolutely. I got on the Zoom to chat shit with the Mac twins, and I mean literal shit, because <laughs> we're talking Lisa McFarlane and Alana McFarlane Kempner's eye-opening new show about gut health on Channel 4, Brilliantly named Know Your Shit. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking big news in women's rugby and priorities for women's sport. But first, clowns to the left of us, Liz Trust to the right, here we are. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where Matt Hancock ironing is just another reason we're never doing TikTok. I think you might have to explain to the listener what this is, Mickey. I've seen it because you sent it to me earlier. Sorry about that. It does what it says on the tin. Down with the people, regular, normal, innocent man, Hat Mancock. He's ironing a shirt, Jen. He's clearly had some comments saying that his shirt is a bit creased. So he's he irons it and then he puts it on and then he looks awkwardly straight into the eyes of the camera and says, Perfect. <laughs> But what I would like to point out is that shirt is grubby. Grubby like the grubby man inside it. I am really enjoying how much he's embracing the extent to which he is Alan Partridge. I'm into it. That return video you sent me, because listeners, the torture went both ways, of Matt Hancock walking down a corridor. I think I'm going to call it walking. There's not a word to describe what he is actually doing. The pained expression on his face, kind of marching. If anyone's ever seen the video for the song Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, when it's just like four Sheffield men marching along to a garage, it's very like that. He's awkwardly sort of marching along and then turns a corner, sadly not in a metaphorical way, just literally turns a corner. What's going on? Who's this PR? What did I say to Vera? I said he looks simultaneously like he's shitting himself and something else. Sorry, this is not great for a podcast. And she said, I hope that he is both simultaneously shitting himself and the other unpleasant thing Mm. that I suggested to her he might be doing. And it made me laugh. 
not great if you don't have the full uh, full story there, which I don't. I can't find it. It's just behind like ten pages of WhatsApp chat about Tommy Lee Royce. Um, let's move on. <laughs> So, Jen, even before seeing various Matt Hancock videos, I felt sick for a few reasons last week. First of all, being genuinely quite poorly with the nasty cold virus doing the rounds. Secondly, the £32.2 billion record profits reported by Shell as people continue to have to decide whether to eat or heat their homes. And the news that British Gas has been obtaining court warrants to break into people's homes and force install prepayment meters. The Times found that the debt agents working for British Gas expressed excitement at putting these meters in the homes of vulnerable people behind on their bills. Something which is against off-gem rules, by the way. Strikes continue across the country, with today, Monday the 6th of February, marking the NHS's biggest strike in its history, with workers walking out over paying conditions, while the fat cats in charge don't bother to pay their taxes and continue to insist that, actually, it's the poor and vulnerable who are wrong, and maybe should just be a bit more canny with the money they don't have, and yes, I will acclaim a little bit more on expenses, thank you very much. What's more, as the cost of living crisis bites even harder, with, for depressing example, something Jen sent me, four out of five teachers saying they've given toothbrushes and toothpaste to students, Britain is expected to be the only major industrialised country to see its economy shrink this year, and the Bank of England is poised to raise interest rates for the tenth time in a row. All of this, all of it is under Tory jurisdiction, sped along by whichever Cunty Gonzales is having a turn in charge. And so, you can imagine the tsunami of nausea that rushed me when I read that, 135 days after the mini-budget that sealed her fate as Britain's shortest-serving Prime Minister and shitter than a lettuce, Liz Truss <laughs> is back. I'd just like to say for the listener that Mickey flourished then as if she was introducing the concept of a pork market and I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> Liz Truss is back and she reckons she's got answers to some of the UK's problems. The sheer arrogance of this is, well, it's it's breathtaking, isn't it? If you're wondering what her answers are, by the way, it's lower taxes for the wealthy. What a shocking turn of events. <laughs> oh. Truss's reappearance, initially in The Telegraph, but now in The Spectator and soon to be, I shit you not, big in Japan, has reignited (laughs) divisions in the Conservative Party. One ally of the Prime Minister, that's currently still Rishi Sunak if you weren't quite caught up, said, the more we hear from her, the harder it becomes to win the election. So yeah, in another shocking turn of events, I'd like Liz Truss to keep talking. Speak up, Liz. Louder, Liz. Once more for those at the back. I'm going to say exactly what I said to you via email earlier today. The fact that she is back giving interviews about what went wrong and suggesting the way out of this mess, that is the confidence that a private education <laughs> will get you. Fucking hell. Can you imagine having the balls? I would simply go and die (laughs) somewhere quietly. I'd be so mortified. I just don't know what else you could do in those circumstances. I really don't. Just looking lovingly back at those 49 days in office and looking at what Rishi Sunak's doing now and going, nah, I still think I could have done it better. If only she'd been given a proper chance, Jen. That's her line. They just didn't give her a proper chance. Oh, man. I just want to say I'm not wishing death upon Liz Truss, by the way. (laughs) No, we just wanted to keep talking so that the the Tory party can't can't be re-elected. 
keep going. Chatty Liz. That's what I want to know her as. Chatty Liz. <sighs> so, Mick, apart from strikes, poverty, corruption and Dominic Raab, <clears throat> I know, the gift that just seems to keep giving across our news feeds is Brexit. Do you remember Brexit? That thing that happened almost seven goddamn years ago. And happy third birthday to us finally getting Brexit done, Jen. How's it feeling? Tell me, how's it feeling? <laughs> well, uh, I'll ask you, Mick, on a scale of one to ten, one being cruising like Smokey fucking Robinson and <laughs> ten being there is literally no steering wheel in this vehicle and not a single courgette in this vegetable aisle, <laughs> roughly where would you say you stand in terms of the UK being in control right now? Because I'd say I'm at about 580. I'm confused why my car is in the supermarket, but I think that sums it up as well. <laughs> <laughs> We could talk until the English cows come home about all the things Brexit hasn't solved and or has made actively worse, but now something really dear to our hearts is in jeopardy as a result of those fucking buses. Lads, steady yourselves. I'm talking about Wallace and Gromit. What? What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Huge news. Sean Clark, the managing director of Oscar-winning British studio Ardman, has spoken out against our conscious uncoupling from the European Union. Clark's raised concerns that animation productions will likely be moved overseas because of challenges such as skills shortages, who'd have thought it, and uh, competition (laughs) from other countries on tax relief. He also spoke out against a lack of funding for children's television. He said, children's television is suffering and what's produced in this country will go off the edge of a cliff in the next couple of years. The ideas will still be conceived here, but they'll be made elsewhere. But it's not just the creative sector that's struggling, as it was announced that High Clear Castle, the setting for ITV's Downton Abbey, and the nuptials of the likes of Katie Price and Peter Andre will no longer host weddings, owing to an absence of seasonal workers and increasing costs of absolutely everything. Writing for The Independent, Lady Carnarvon, who classed Highclere as a small family business, said that they had tried everything, but that Brexit has caused such a retraction of people available to work in the hospitality business that we realised we simply cannot guarantee that we can find enough staff to put on an event of the quality we would want. So there you have it. They literally can't get the staff at Downton Abbey. It's not going well, is it? It's not going well at all. Would you like some good news, Mick? Yes, yes, please, Jen. Okay. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the clusterfuck that is the Brit Award, so I'm delighted to head stateside now for some good award season news, and that almost never happens. Whoop, whoop. Obviously, I'm talking about Beyonce, who broke a new record on Sunday night as she picked up three Grammy Awards, bringing her total to 32, the most a single act has received in the history of the awards. Wowzers. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? The only bad news I have here is that it was James Corden who presented her with the record-breaking award. Sad face. That was really going to piss on your parade, isn't it? She also missed out on the first one of the night because she was stuck in traffic. But, you know... I, I expect she'll get over both of those tragedies. <laughs> the previous record holder was the late Jorg Salty, whose last win was in 1997. He had 31. The only other woman in the top 10 is bluegrass country singer Alison Krauss, who's picked up a total of 27, including 14, which is shared with her backing band Union Station. Congratulations, Beyonce, if you're listening. I'm sure you are. I really do love you. Can't believe you said if, if you're listening. Hey, bae. 
phone me. <laughs> <laughs> and can I have tickets for your tour, please? Because they're quite competitively uh, sought after. <laughs> More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we have to brace ourselves for the fact that women aren't even safe from male predators when we're dead. I'm sorry, I usually lead in with a bit of a gag or a clever line here, but the news that male firefighters from the Dorset and Wiltshire Fire Service have allegedly been sharing photos of women killed in car crashes on WhatsApp for lads lols. It's just too depressing. What's even more depressing is I'm not particularly surprised. The UK police are investigating. Oh, good. The same UK police that had Dennis Jaffa and Jamie Lewis in its ranks. They're the two officers who took and shared photos of murdered sisters Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry. Yeah? Oh, well, consider the women of the UK reassured then. As for the women in the fire service, that sexism directed at female firefighters from their male co-workers is rife is again depressingly unsurprising. The fire service and the police are very hierarchical institutions that for decades have been male-dominated. So they're going to attract shitpots that love a power trip. Note, shitpots, not bad apples. A spokesperson from HMI CFRS, that is the independent body that assesses complaints and conduct within the UK fire and police services, said that they are, quote, deeply concerned by these allegations from Dorset and Wiltshire. They added, we are in contact with Dorset and Wilshire Fire Service to ensure this is investigated thoroughly and we will be closely monitoring the outcome of the service's independent review. So, it's Valentine's week, it's LGBT History Month, so I am joined by writer and woman of many talents, Val McDermott, to talk about same-sex love poetry. Thank you for being here, Val. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk about the programme. What have you got planned for Valentine's Day? I haven't really got anything planned yet at all. I've actually thought about it. This year has just flown past. We were in New Zealand for four months, tail end of last year. Uh, and as a result, as soon as we got back, everything's piled into the diary. Mm. Um, so I've, I've barely had time to breathe. So no doubt I'll think of something in time. Sarah's in New Zealand at the minute. Sarah, the boss. Yeah, I know. She's, uh, we've been swapping tweets. As one of the country's most popular crime writers, people might be a little surprised to hear you talking about romance, and they're certainly going to be surprised to hear me talking about it. So <laughs> maybe you could start by telling me about why we're here, which is Cupid Loves Eros, which airs tonight. Cupid Loves Eros is a programme on, for Radio 4 about same-sex love expressed in poetry. Valentine's Week is always a time when we talk about, about love and romance and it's often expressed in poetry, even right down to the roses are red, violets are blue. But it's always been really quite heteronormative. It's about men loving women, women loving men. And so we decided, my producer and I, that it was time that we reject the balance a little bit and did a programme about queer poetry through the ages because there's really an awful lot of it. I think many poems use you to address the object of the poem, to mm. disguise the fact that the object of the poem is someone of the same sex um, or the same gender or whatever you, however you choose to express it. But that's kind of been papered over over the years, over the centuries, by the conventions of heterosexual life. And so we decided, as I say, we'd, we'd, we'd take a deep dive into queer poetry down the years. I absolutely loved it. That wasn't surprising to me, and that's not going to be surprising to anyone listening, because although I am heterosexual... I don't know, 85%, something like that. I'd say we're all on a spectrum, aren't we? 
I've long thought that gay and lesbian romance is way, way, way more interesting than heterosexual romance. When I was prepping for this interview and listening to her, I, I put a bit of thought into why that was. And I came up with a couple of reasons, all of which I think have got interesting talking points. And, and the first is obviously that same-sex love is, is throughout most of human history, it's just been much harder won. You know, boy meets girl is not intrinsically interesting, which is why screenwriters, poets, all of that put barriers in the way because, you know, they they create artificial barriers. But with same-sex attraction, like I say, for certainly for most of the time I've been alive, the barrier is already built in. Social stigma or the law. I mean, as you discuss in Cupid Loves Eros, writing about same-sex attraction for love, I mean, for many people, that's a real act of bravery. How do you feel about the writers that did that? I think in many cases they were they were rowing against the tide. They were taking a chance, if you like, taking a risk. But I think what we also have to remember is the nature of sexual identity. You know, we, we talk about Shakespeare writing uh, his, his sonnets both to a young man and, and, and to the dark lady. Back then that wasn't such a, a remarkable thing because being gay wasn't an identity, if you like. It was, as, as, as I think Foucault puts it, it was a verb, not a noun. <laughs> yeah. What you did, not, not what you were. And so it was the sort of thing that was relatively acceptable. There were things that were not acceptable. Sodomy was a punishable by death, which seems quite extreme, really. You know, I'd, I'd have thought sodomy was punishment enough of itself. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> but that was that was one area where, where the, the, the law did step in. But by and large, it was not impossible to have, a, have an identity of, of loving someone of the same gender. But still, it made life a lot simpler if you disguised that. Mm. Uh, and as I said earlier, if you disguised it by using you uh, to address the poem to you rather than to her or to him, it, just, it could be to anyone. And we, we, we know from what we know of the history, history of, the, of the people involved that, it, that often it was directed to someone of the same gender. Uh, and so we, we tried to uncover some of that mystery uh, in, in this programme. And I think it's it's um, quite clear that there were times when it was risky or, or even a risque thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> but people somehow managed to more usually survive the, the, the insult, I suppose, that uh, society felt about this kind of thing. The second reason, I think, is that heterosexual romance especially in the arts it's where sexual stereotypes about men and women are sort of at their strongest I mean poetry is a big offender here it's all about men wishing to sort of possess a woman and it's about a woman being like protected by a man and frankly all that stuff just makes me want to vomit do you think there's a difference (laughs) about the way that women write about women or and men write about men rather than how men write about women? Has that become clear to you looking at poetry? Yeah, I think it's it's quite clear that there's, a, if you like, an equality of appetite. Mm. It's very rare to uh, to have heterosexual love poetry where women are given any agency whatsoever. And some of Robert Burns' poems, I'm a bit, I'm a bit Burns-obsessed at the moment because I've just been doing Burns suppers all last week. And some of Robert Burns' poems, he quite clearly, uh, it's, up to, it's up to the women as much as it is to the man. Corn rigs, for example, it's Annie who says, yeah, let's go for it. So, mm. But mostly, as, as you say, it's about men taking this sort of longing for women, particular women, uh, and it is about possession, it is about control, I want you to be mine, all mm. mine. And I think when women write heterosexual love poetry, it's it's, it's a different sort of, sort of thing as well. But in 
same-sex relationships, there is that uh, there is that equality of desire and equality of, of agency. And that brings me to the third reason, which is that I think it really speaks to the recovering Catholic in me. Um, <laughs> now, you, you, you talk about two loves by Lord Alfred Douglas in the programme, which is where the expression, the love that dare not speak its name, comes from. But I don't want to spoil that bit for everyone. So I thought I could make the same point with this extract with a bit of James Baldwin. I've not done a poetry reading on the podcast before, so let's see how this goes. Each time desire looked towards love, hoping to find a witness, guilt shouted louder and shook them hips, and the fire of the cigarette threatened to burn the warehouse down. Desire actually started across the street time after time to hear what love might have to say. But guilt flagged down a truckload of other people and knelt down in the middle of the road, and while the truckload of other people looked away and swore that they didn't see nothing and couldn't testify no how and love moved out of sight, guilt accomplished upon the standing body of desire the momentary inflammatory soothing which seals their union forever and creates a mighty traffic problem. Now that poem's called Guilt, Desire and Love, which says it all really, doesn't it? Yeah, that's wonderful. I wish we'd have been able to include that in the, in the programme because it sums up so much of, of what's at the heart of same-sex love and has been for a long time. Thankfully, that does seem to be less potent than it used to be. We mm. seem to be more able to express our desire uh, and our, our love. But, of course, one of the, the problems, I think, for gay people that remains is is finding the person that you fancy or you care about, that you can form a relationship with. It's still difficult, I think, for a lot of people if you live outside one of the big metropolitan cities, it's quite hard to find anybody who might possibly fit into your wee box of desire and love. So I think one of the things about having this, this programme is to to point out that it is possible, that these things are, are, are possible and when they happen, they're absolutely amazing. Sometimes it takes a long time. You have to kiss a lot of frogs sometimes, but it's out there. I mean, I hope one of the things about it is that it provides hope for yeah. people's relationships for the future. Also, what became quite clear when I was listening is, is is there's quite a lot about self-acceptance. You know, you are quite often your your worst enemy or your harshest critic. And there's something about, you know, maybe the whole world would accept me if I have to be ready to accept myself. Yeah, and that's um, particularly in um, the, the, the poem by Frank O'Hara, Homosexuality, where he sort of comes suddenly, almost like suddenly awakes to himself and admits to himself what he is and who he is and who he loves. Uh, and, and that's, I think, quite a wonderful poem for, for that purpose. I mean, when I was growing up, I didn't know what lesbians were. I mean, I grew up in Fife in the 1960s and early 70s. There were no lesbians in Fife. It was, it was like a unicorn, you know. You were going to be the one. Uh, it took me to, to going off to Oxford and discovering the feminists and reading Kate Millett's sexual politics to discover that, that there was an existence and that the way I felt was not so weird after all, that there were other women like me. And I think it's very difficult sometimes, particularly for young women, to separate that sort of emotional connection that female friends have from the relationship that goes beyond that into a sexual relationship. So I think knowing that there are, there are other people out there like you also is something that helps you come to terms with it for yourself. Now, we talked about, in this bit, about quite a lot of men. So I wonder, is there any female poets writing about LGBT issues that you think we, that our listeners should be listening to or should be reading, sorry. 
There's plenty of them out there. I mean, going right back to the very beginning, we've got Sappho. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, all we've got is fragments of, of Sappho's poetry, but really that sort of says enough for us to get the gist of where she was going and what she was feeling. But there's many contemporary poets uh, who are writing about these things, Jackie Kay, Caroline Duffy, Audrey Lord, are all referenced in, in the, in the programme. Indeed, we have a couple of readings of their poems. Colette Bryce, who's a, a Northern Irish poet, also my, one of my favourite poems in the programme is, is her poem Car Wash. Oh uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's just it's a great it's a great poem and it, it completely is it's a completely modern setting here and now, mundane if you like, every day in the car wash, and suddenly they have a moment of of secrecy if you like, sort of privacy, that uh, to to have a kiss, which is still something that they would feel uncomfortable about doing in the street. There's plenty plenty of us about, uh, and then there's the extraordinary Joel Taylor who is a great performance poet who won the, the T.S. Eliot Prize this year for her collection, Kunto. She's amazing. If you ever get the chance to see her reading her work, it's an amazing experience. I shared a stage with her at the Edinburgh Book Festival a few years ago, and the audience, were their jaws were dropping and people were crying. It was just a very moving experience. So there is, there is plenty of lassies out there uh, doing the business for the poetry. Now, talking to lassies doing the business, I've got to ask you about something. All of us, all three of us, Mickey, Jen and I, all absolutely loved Karen Perry, which is the ITV adaptation of your book. Can I ask you what you made of it? I loved it. I thought they did a really good job. It was it was complicated because they had to move the timeline forward because of when the book was originally written. Mm-hmm. And I thought the idea of, of using the podcast as part of the way of telling the story, was was really clever. I thought Lauren Lyle was brilliant as Karen Perry. She don't look anything like the Karen Perry in my head, but she really embodies Karen's personality, you know, her, her absolute uh, commitment to justice, but also her sense of humour and her bloody-mindedness, if you like, uh, and refusal to, to not be herself. Uh, so I, I thought they did a great job with it. It was good telly, and hopefully there will be more in the pipeline. There's be another Karen Perry novel in the pipeline coming out later this year. Aha, that's actually my question, because when I keyed in, is Val McDermott, which I sometimes do, key it into Google and see what the most asked <laughs> is Val McDermott. is, yeah. is Val McDermott writing another Karen Perry book was the top question that came up, so you've answered that for me, which is brilliant. Yeah, the previous Karen Perry book, Still Life, finished just at the start of, of COVID. We were just starting to get a sense that something was coming. Um, and I couldn't write another book set in the here and now at the end of that because every day, the future was different every day. We didn't know mm-hmm. what it was going to be. The uncertainty, people were dying, people were ill. We had no idea if this was going to be the plague that sees us off or what was going to happen. And I I, I felt I couldn't write in the context of, of the here and now then, which is why I started writing 1979, 1989, and that will go on to 2019 as a sequence. But I thought that it was time that I wrote another Karen Perry. And while I was in New Zealand, uh, I wrote I wrote another one, which takes place in lockdown. So oh, I felt interesting. I could look back at it from a distance because we don't have the same uncertainty about it. Uh, we have a sense that, that we have a, that we know what happened, if you like. So I can write a bit about time that it was happening when i thought about the future in lockdown it, it was like watching a detuned tv with just the fuzz on it i couldn't i just couldn't yeah. picture anything beyond i need to go to the supermarket because i'm going to run out of milk or whatever i couldn't yeah. picture the future at all i had the additional problem for me um that i had back in 2017 i had written a series of radio plays for radio 4 called resistance 
which was about antimicrobial resistance. And it was basically apocalyptic. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd done a project with the Wellcome Foundation. I spent time with scientists talking about antimicrobial resistance and how the plague's coming and we're all going to die. Uh, and that was essentially what I wrote, I wrote a drama, three, three-part drama. And then we turned it into a graphic novel. And so I had a very profound fear mm. because I'd spoken to the scientists who told me, this is not an if, this is a when. So I, I really was living in a state of, of, of quite considerable anxiety because I felt I have the information at my fingertips and it's very unsettling. It's it's really strange already to look back at that time and think that when I talk about it, that I'm not sort of internally chastising myself for exaggerating because I do have a tendency to exaggerate. But all mm. of the things I'm saying are true, but they sound mad even though I know they're true. So... In relaying a story to someone, like, for example, telling you now that I was shut in my house for four months by myself with just my cats, I think, no, that can't have happened. That can't have been what happened. And, and yet it was. It, even, even now it still seems unbelievable to me. Yeah, and all that time, I mean, you know, Joe and I were, were, were in the house together and we were absolutely fine. We had no issue about being locked in together, as it were. But it was our friends we missed. Mm. We missed that easy, the easy dailiness of talking to your friends, bumping at your friends in the shop or whatever, and just you know, like meeting up, sitting over the dinner table, having a laugh and a drink, and all of that. Those months were times when you thought, "Is that ever going to happen again? Yeah. Ever wow. going to recover that?" Um, and then there was the disaster of cutting each other's hair. I mean, you thought, <laughs> that was the point where you thought, "I'm quite glad I'm not going out meeting people right now." <laughs> Val, we mentioned true crime podcasts, obviously, because of Karen Perry. What what do you make of the uptick over the last I'd probably decade, I'd say, in interest in true crime? Do you think it's over the top? Do you think it's interesting? How how does it strike you? Well, I don't really listen to them very much, if I'm honest, because partly because I don't want my own imagination to be contaminated with what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. I think some of it is a lot of people, we read a lot of crime fiction, and a lot of us think back to our youth reading YA novels about teenage detectives. I think people have this this, this desire almost to, to, to be the detective, to be mm-hmm. the person out there on the front line solving these crimes. And so I think that's one of the attractions of the, the true crime podcast, that people imagine themselves in the investigator's shoes. They do unsettle me, though, because I think there's no reason why these investigations should be any more effective than a failed police investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, if people don't have access to the relevant pieces of information, they don't have access to the interviews, they don't have access to the statements, it's very easy looking at things from the outside to think you know best about what happened. And, you know, I think it's very dangerous in many respects for people to go down that road of thinking that uh, they can solve something that experts didn't. And I'm not saying experts always get it right, because obviously they don't, because we know enough about miscarriages of justice to know that they don't. But I'm not convinced that some of the, the stuff that's being done is is, is, is of value. Yeah, I, I agree. I think quite often the victim is lost yeah. in the story and it becomes, you know, you become the central character of the story, person who's listening to it, like you say, as the detective. But I also think the sort of endless speculation that goes on about, I mean, yes, it most often is the boyfriend or the ex-boyfriend, but sometimes it's not. And the yeah. things that get spoken to about people and I think oh wow if they didn't if they didn't do this their life is ruined now because there yeah. are pages and pages of people speculating over whether they did it and yeah yeah I think it's quite yeah. dangerous 
And I mean, I, you know, I spent long enough as a journalist to know that however much we think we know about a crime, we don't know the whole story. You know, I, I was a journalist in Manchester for a long, long time, and 20 years after the Moors murders, but every six months or so, a story would come up involving, in one way or another, the Moors murders. And over the years, I spoke to an awful lot of people concerned with the case. I spoke to the families. I spoke to, to the, the, the workmates, the friends. I spoke to... Uh, people more intimately connected with the, the prison officer who had the affair with Myra Hindley. I spoke to Ian Brady's mother. I got all sorts of bits of information from various people, and yet I never felt I knew the whole story. Mm. You know, I felt there were, there were, there were things that were, were, were missing from the story that no amount of poking about would hand over to me. Uh, and I think that if, if that's the case with a, a, a case that's so widely written about and so widely explored as the Moors murders, how much more is it the case with uh, a, a less well-publicised murder, a less well-publicised abduction? Yeah. You don't know. You don't know. You can't know. And so, so much is speculation. And as you say, it can be very damaging. Val, this has been an absolute pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Cupid Loves Eros is tonight on Radio 4 and uh, plenty of books to look forward to. Thank you ever so much for chatting to me. Thanks so much, Hannah. It's been great. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Lisa McFarlane and Alana McFarlane-Kempner, a.k.a. the Mac Twins, DJs and glamorous presenters by night, poo enthusiasts by day, founders of The Gut Stuff and hosts of new Channel 4 six-parter, Know Your Shit Inside Our Guts. Lisa, Alana, hello. Hello. You just described our lives in one paragraph. (laughs) (laughs) How lovely to see my two favourite people to see at weddings and netball matches. (laughs) No two better arenas in life. Exactly. All human life is there. Yeah. (laughs) So first things first, how did you get into poo? Good, big question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very randomly. So, yeah, as you said in your intro, we used to be DJs from a very working class Scottish background, so couldn't have been further from health and wellness. But we actually volunteered for twin research back in 2015. Um, And at the time, we had no idea what we were signing up for. But we were like, yeah, medical research, let's, let's give it a bash. And yeah, we had lots of different things tested there. But at the time, the American Gut Project was happening. And Tim Spector, who has been in the press a lot recently, asked us if we wanted to have our guts analysed. And we were like, what What do you mean our beer bellies? We, we had no idea what our guts were. But anyway, it turned out we were one of the first people to be part of this study. So they found out from our bodies, even though we have 100% the same DNA, we only had 30 to 40% the same gut bacteria, um, which was quite yeah, groundbreaking research at the time and got us on a journey into what, you know, health and wellness meant to us and completely turned on its head everything it did. Because for us, you know, health just wasn't being ill. and Wellness was something that Gwyneth Paltrow talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think everyone we thought of health or diet, it was like the cabbage soup diet pre-Magaluf 2005. It was extreme restrictive diets and obviously you know being the DJs on Love Island we were in a world at the time where people were focusing very much on what was on the outside and not on the inside so that sort of got the fire in our bellies to or a better word to change the way that people thought about health and their bodies and also just let people know about how fascinating the gut was and what it was linked to. And we've been pooing since the, the start of time so that that's, <laughs> it's always been a passion. <laughs> and we actually had to send our poo off in the post every day 
um, as part Every of the day. first study and, and, and research, uh, literally in the post box. So we yeah. became very acquainted with our poo that we hadn't done for the first 25, 26 <laughs> years of our life. <laughs> Tell me about Know Your Shit and how it works as a show. Yeah, so we were pitching the idea for a tele show about guts for quite some time. And we're told on numerous occasions, firstly, no one wants to watch a show about guts. And secondly, it will never be mass market. It'll be stuck on the back of a health channel and nobody's interested. And then we, yeah, we met Monkey and they were like, oh my God, they were just so passionate about it. Long story short, we went into quite a lot of development and yeah, and now we've got basically the Bake Off slot on Channel 4, which is nuts. But the show is essentially Queer Eye meets Embarrassing Bodies. Um, <laughs> so we have amazing contributors that come in. Their problems range from bloating and farting too much, like the usual, to really, as if that's not debilitating enough, really quite debilitating conditions. And interweave with that, there's like little pockets of science and actually, like the contributors that come on are so brave and they're the stars of the show. But it's a surprising emotional roller coaster of a show. It's a great show. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And they were wrong about no one watching. 1.7 million for your first episode watching live. That's incredible. It turns out yeah. nation wants to talk about poo as much as we do. <laughs> yeah, and I think as well, you know, like I think everyone was just very pleasantly surprised at those figures, given that, well, the football was on another station and that people don't normally watch health formats in that way. So the fact that people tuned in at exactly to watch at that time and they stayed for the hour, which is brilliant. So yeah, we're very excited to get all the sort of consolidated triggers back and see. But for us, it was just really heartwarming to know that so many people were, were interested in it and um, a relief after so many years of work. <laughs> yes, totally. So Lisa, you just mentioned that people come on to know your shit and they have shared some really intimate problems Jan, oh, Jan, was especially touching. I have never oh been God. so delighted to see a woman in white trousers. Seriously, it is genuinely really moving. Were you expecting that? Absolutely not. Um, I think as well, like, you know, we've been in the world of gut health for quite some time and assumed that we had, you know, seen and heard, we get a lot of messages in DM. We assumed we'd seen and heard everything there is to know about gut health and yeah we were just especially Jan like Alan and I basically given our papers to adopt us <laughs> we were like we became so emotionally involved in all of them but yeah I think what surprised us was I guess the mental health journey that these people had been on as well mm-hmm. yeah just how debilitated they were and how much their lives yeah were limited by their gut issues mm-hmm. We have papers in place for Jan to adopt us. <laughs> Currently going through the system. <laughs> so how does your lovely mum feel about that? Yeah, no. Grandparents. It, it's granny, our, it's granny. All our grandparents died young. Yeah, we've been in need of one for many years now. Okay. And um, when Jan came along, we were like, yeah, the, also, you are the, the one. You know the bit where we go and do burlesque yes. with her and her friends? Yeah. Genuinely one of the best days of my life. <laughs> like these Liverpudlian 16-year-old feminists, honestly, the stuff that they spoke about and came up with, we could have had another six-part series just on those conversations. It was so brilliant and funny and, you know, illuminating. And, you know, like they were all going, you know, speaking about the menopause, speaking about the, the things that we all talk about with, you know, with women, um, you know, feeling invisible and not being able, like having to speak to each other, is getting away from their husband, going to the pub together, which they didn't really do the generation before. And it was just honestly absolutely fascinating. You need to get them all on this 
podcast. Every single <laughs> one of them. Put me in touch with Jan. She's amazing. I love yeah. her. Because I'm a Scouser by heritage, so it was very reminiscent of growing up. So it was really lovely. And yeah, when she said it's a jam butty, I was like, yes, it is a jam butty. <laughs> That's what they needed to say. <laughs> There's that sense of community, though, and I think that really comes across in the show, in that it can feel really isolating. And actually, by bringing these people together to Poo HQ and to showing that to the nation, to the viewers, you're going to have been making people who are dealing with these conditions feel a lot less alone. Yeah, and I hope, I mean, that's like one of the the main purposes of the show, I think. And I think if that's... You know, if we can change two or three people, I think one of our friends overheard someone in a pub saying that they'd watched the show on Channel 4 and they were going to their GP next week. And, you know, if we can do that for a handful of people, we'll have done our job. Never mind. Hopefully changing even more lives than that. Because you are breaking the taboo, right? The big poo taboo. Now, I'm all up for a big old chat about poo. Happy to tell someone when I've got a badger at the checkout and all of that stuff. (laughs) But I am... Oh my God, I love that. (laughs) I am vastly outnumbered by the squeamish when it comes to seriously talking about shit. Why is that? I think some of it has to do with the patriarchy and women not thinking that they're able to talk about poo or farts and we've got like a kind of girls poo to uh, mantra <laughs> on the show and um, there's a bit of that there's a bit of I, I think it's quite a British like shame thing because in other cultures sometimes you know some cultures are very open about kind of bowel habits I think also people are scared there's something quite tribal about diets and what we eat now and people tend to their identity is caught mm. up in what they eat a lot of the time, which is so surprising that why would we not then talk about the other end? Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. And I think it is kind of like the big final taboo, I guess. Like hopefully we're getting there with periods and sex and, and you know, yeah. And I think that, yeah, I'm not sure why. But once the floodgates are open, they're very open. People, A lot of people come out to us in the street now and ask us, I've not peed for three, I'm not pooed for three days, is that normal? <laughs> um, and I'm like, eh, no. <laughs> You just said the phrase, the floodgates are open. And it reminded me that when I was writing questions for you, just everything became a euphemism. I was like, everything I write is now about somehow about poo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also that the puns flow very easily once you get in the swing as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, like, I don't know at what point we stopped talking about it because with puppies and dogs, we talk about poo all the time. Mm-hmm. I have a one-year-old. We talk about her poo a lot and have done for the past year. And kids talk about poo a lot. It's like, it, I think it must be in your sort of teenage years, you lose the ability to talk openly about it or with, you know, with jest about it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it's that those extremes, isn't it? It's either like buttoned up, don't talk about it at all. Or, you know, the British have got a real toilet humour. There's birthday cards, there's all sorts of things that like will play on the fact that people fart and shit, because we do. And yet when it comes to discussing serious stuff, then it's trickier. So that's what I really loved about the show, is that you brought those two together. Mm, you've married them, well done, <laughs> love it. Toilet humour meets microbiology. <laughs> it's, what, it's what we've been waiting for, clearly. Who knew that's what the world needed, who knew? <laughs> and actually gut health is really hot right now and like you guys are old hands at it obviously but it is a relatively new science that is discovering there are so many poo clues when it comes to a lot of our health issues aren't there yeah i mean we've kind of lived with these microorganisms since the dawn of time 
they've lived everywhere and on us. We couldn't live without them. And I think we've all sort of known the concept of gut bacteria for a while. But what we're now starting to realize, because we're able to test them out with their environment, so they essentially die in air. Um, and we now have the technology to have a look at these guys, cultivate these guys and see what they actually do. And that's why the science is progressing so rapidly, because they're starting to unlock other clues to, you know, things like cancer therapeutics, immunology, and they're starting to piece together. They actually outnumber our human cells as well. So we're starting to really look into how and why they they influence different areas of our health, but also secondly, it's come a lot more immediate, and you know, particularly in Western culture and you know, post COVID with over sanitization, sedentary lifestyles, lots of ultra processed foods, and a lot of these species are dying off forever not to come back. So, yeah, I think there it's the kind of coupled with the science is we're able to look at them, but also secondly, we need to look after them more than ever, really. On the show, you are joined by two experts, Sophie Medlin, a dietitian, and Dr. Rabia Topan, who is a gastroenterologist. So you have got experts on the show who are helping you diagnose the people who have put themselves forward to be on Know Your Shit. But if there's anyone who is worried about their gut health or who has recognised their own symptoms from an episode, where is the best place to start getting help? Always go to your GP first. So a lot of the interventions you show on the show as well should always be done with a health practitioner um, or medical professional so one really good thing and a sort of top tip that we have if you are going to your GP with a digestive issue is try and do a bit of a food diary it doesn't not just food so stool samples what you've you know how you've exercised that day how you're feeling and because I think you know we never really, really tune, tune into our bodies. Do you know what I mean? Unless we're hungover or we're ill. So a lot of the time people will be like, go to their GP and then the GP will be like, when did you last poo? Or how often do you poo? And we go, um, I actually don't know. So it's super helpful if you've kept that maybe for ideally six weeks before, but, but a couple of weeks before. But the first port of call should always be, yeah, your GP. And what if people are just wanting to be a bit better at gut health? Where is the best place to start getting information? Come on now, plug your excellent com. <laughs> yeah, our website has far too much content, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we basically got together kind of scientists, clinicians, you know, even dermatologists, immunologists from all over the world. And we're like, what tips do you all agree on? And can we put them on our website? (laughs) Uh, We're also launching an app that does just what Alana said. So you're able to track your gut health and download PDFs to take to your GP or healthcare practitioner. Because we found that was probably, as you rightly pointed out, kind of the biggest gap is that people don't actually have the vocabulary Mm -hmm. to say what their gut. People are like, I feel a bit bloated, but also I've got diarrhea. But sometimes when I have this, it's this. And actually you know you've got 10 minutes with your GP it's not a long time to kind of go through that uh, yeah and then there's like lessons it's basically like fun GCSE biology there's lessons and things on there as well <laughs> I think a lot of people and I think what we're realizing with the show as well and we were certainly in that bracket is you don't know what their gut is physically so uh, we thought it was just our stomachs but it's a long piece of kit everything from mouth to bum and then we certainly, the majority of us don't know about the microbiome, which, you know, is fascinating. So I think as well, like I think a lot of people are coming to gut health from different angles. So people with digestive issues, which is a quarter of the population massive. So things like IBS and IBD, 
but also people are now starting to come into gut health from mental health with the links with the gut brain access or immunity or other diseases so the way we're all coming into gut health is very different and from lots of different places so I think a good way you know a good thing about the app and the show and everything that we do with the gut stuff is getting everyone on that level playing field of the gut basics and and knowing what it is and and what the gut does and how it is so important to our overall health. Yeah, and as someone, I've I've had IBS for a, a long time, and it was definitely stress initiated, and have learned to deal with it. But what I love about the gut stuff, which is wealth of information, I'm not going to say too much information, but there is a lot of information there. <laughs> and with the show, is it's really easy to understand without being patronising. Describing the microbiomes as a garden, it's like, oh, okay, right, okay, that's really interesting. I understand that that connection between our brains and our guts, which is why stress can initiate such horrific debilitating syndromes describing that as a phone line and how it gets over it gets too busy is it's really helpful because I think when it's inside when it's inside us we just don't understand what's going on or certainly the majority of us don't understand what's going on yeah Yeah, and and I think people are intimidated by science Mm -hmm. and I think if if we can't see it we find it quite difficult to understand the thing that actually surprised us most since we've kind of got on this journey with gut health is obviously like well-being is very much seen as a middle-class luxury and of course that's down to you know industry and commerce and the products are functional products are expensive because they know that people the worried well will buy them Mm -hmm. Um, but also secondly like people just don't feel like they deserve to feel well which I think is one of the most bleak, sad yeah. things ever. And it's the sort of the thing that we uncovered was that actually people have just settled for feeling fine and existing. And that's what is annoying about the wellbeing industry. It's like, oh, yeah, you can feel brilliant like me. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it is that, really, because it's like we can be beyond. And it's not gong baths and standing on your, on your head drinking green, green smoothies. It's everything our granny told us, like hydrate yourself, have more fibre, mm-hmm. you know, Take time out for you. If that's down the pub drinking with your pals, then that's down the pub drinking with your pals. It does not have to be a full moon ceremony in a yoga studio in London. Like, <laughs> And I think that's what the, the point that I want to get across, especially with the show, is that actually everything on the show is affordable and accessible. All the tips that we give, the tips that we give specifically or the, the experts give to the contributors should always be done with a healthcare professional. But the other kind of things that we say are basically like, eat some sweet corn and see how long it takes you to poo. Like it's not really expensive and accessible stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm guessing with your background, that was incredibly important to you that this is accessible to everyone. Yeah, yeah definitely. I think, and I think not being preachy, I think, you know, to want a better word, and that is certainly one thing our mum said straight away when we started doing the gut stuff was, oh, don't be preachy, don't be preachy. <laughs> um, and that is why we chose the experts to be on the show, the ones that we did, because they share the same values as we do and, you know, explain in just really warm, accessible, fun, yet informative ways. And I think they're full female powerhouse team, but more than anything, they share the same values and, and the wider team as well, which was something that was really important to us. You know, when you starting a project when you feel like you've known everyone your whole life that's mm. when you know it's right yeah. and they all had the same vision as us and you know we all, we said you know like a couple of days before launch no one watches this we're really proud of what we've made and we have done what we set out to do yeah it's just been great that people have watched it yeah no worries <laughs> on that front <laughs> beyond our pals because you know you just think are we in an echo chamber because the first night 
obviously you don't know how many people are watching and our phones were obviously going off because our friends were basically everyone going Jan and <laughs> just like everyone just going oh my god I love Jan um so you're kind of like oh sh- like are we just in an echo chamber like is it just our pals watching and then yeah obviously it was a relief the next day and we're like oh other people did watch good <laughs> it's genuinely really entertaining which I knew it would be I know you two I knew it was going to be entertaining and great but I was not expecting to be as moved by the stories as I was and so yeah that's it's it can be really poignant as well as really informative I think the word is fungicational I think so I think that's what it oh is oh my god <laughs> what a word it sounds almost like a mushroom but like a clever mushroom just you wait, by the way. There's a few more emotional episodes coming up. Well, you can watch these two clever mushrooms as all six episodes of the first series of Know Your Shit are available on 4OD now. What's next? What are you doing next? Is there going to be a second series? I hope so. Our DMs and phones are anything to go away with people asking if they can book into BHQ. Then hopefully there will be a, a series two. At least now, just like we just want to help everyone. How many series can we possibly do so that we do? So yeah, I hope that we do get a series two. And where can people find out more about what you're up to? Just, just the gut stuff. Com. Oh, that was a that was the twinnest thing you've done all interview. I loved it. <laughs> and yeah, Instagram just the gut stuff or at the Mac Twins. Yeah, but the gut stuff is has all the signposts for anything you want to learn about gut health, really. And are you still doing the glamorous DJing as well? Very rarely. We 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 sort of say we're retired. Lewis Capaldi asked us to DJ a few weeks ago. We did that. Fun. Some of them will come out of retirement for, but um, I just like to do my bed for nine o'clock now. I mean, fair enough. We will do anything for a couple of bottles of red wine, though. <laughs> that being that being said, listeners, she's not <laughs> shitting you. I know that they will. <laughs> uh, as ever, a total delight to see both of you. Thank you so much for joining me and having a chat about this. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we dive into the scrum of all things women's sport. Apologies that you were without your weekly sports fix in our last pod scene. I was a bit poorly last week, but I'm back now and I am awash with good news. Mostly. First up, congratulations to Jill Whitehead, who's been appointed Independent Chair of the Rugby World Cup 2025 Board of Directors. It's particularly exciting because the next Women's Rugby World Cup is going to be hosted in England, which is a great opportunity to get some support behind the Red Roses and to showcase the sport to thousands of women and girls across the country. The last World Cup, which was held a year late because of COVID last year, was in New Zealand and had a fantastic following. So I think it's really exciting to see what we can achieve here. Obviously, we like to see women heading up boards and Whitehead has a lot of experience working for the likes of Channel 4 and the BBC at executive level. Plus, she's also played rugby and holds level two coaching badges herself. Whitehead described the appointment as a dream come true and she'll be presiding over a brand new structure for the tournament, which will be the biggest yet with 16 teams competing as opposed to 12. Congratulations also to Ramla Ali, who you may remember hearing on this very podcast some time ago now when she came on to chat about her book, Not Without a Fight. Ali handed out the first defeat of Australian Avril Mathie's career to become the IBF Intercontinental Super Bantamweight Champion. It's Ali's first professional title, which she won by a unanimous points decision of 99 to 91. 
I should, however, say knob off to some of the reporting of this, which includes headlines such as Boxing star Avril Mathy jokes that Ramla Ali punches gave her free lip filler and boxing promoter Eddie Hearn struggles to maintain his focus as Avril Mathy weighs in wearing a yellow bikini, which is, you know, just absolutely base-level shite. <sighs> Size. Let's talk about some more shite briefly, and I'm talking about the government's sports minister, Stuart Andrew, who made a speech which I would have spoken about last week, but doesn't appear to have been widely reported on, so worth a mention now, even though it was on January the 30th. He was speaking at a Westminster Insight conference on the future of women's sport, outlining, apparently, his priorities. He's delighted, he said, to have seen so many great sporting events and that the profile of women's sport is on the up, and he wants to build on that momentum. So far, so good. He highlighted some of the progress made, including that research published by the Women's Sport Trust last year shows that 43 million people watched a whopping three minutes or more of women's sport last year. I probably would personally have led with the secondary stat he mentions which is that a total of 325 million hours were viewed compared to 19.1 million hours in 2012 but whatever it's not my speech there's more work to be done however he recognizes in particular he noted that men are still far more likely to be active than women and indeed boys more than girls and that barriers including fear of judgment safety concerns and a lack of time prevent progress in this area well they all sound like i don't know massive fucking societal problems don't they i wonder if anything will be done about those he then fails to list a single way in which any of these priorities could be achieved or policy that could be implemented they'll continue to invest in grassroots sport they're refreshing their overarching sports strategy they'll see if they can host more events it is so so hard to take andrew's passion seriously with flimsy toothless statements like this Anyway, I promised you good news, so let's end on a high. You might remember last year I spoke about reports around the anticipated professionalisation, don't know if that's a word, but let's use it, of women's football in Ireland. That has now been confirmed. As of the new season, clubs competing in the top flight in Ireland will now be able to pay players. Congratulations to those women, and I hope that lots of them will benefit from the changes. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Standard issue for all women.